0: Our Father, as we come to your word today, we remember that your word has power to change lives. That your Holy Spirit has power to change lives. And Lord, we need our lives to be changed by your word, by the power of your Spirit. So we pray that your grace Would help us to reach change for your glory this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When a pilot flies a plane, they're given this computer generated. Plan flight plan, and a specific code that will take them to the airport that they are supposed to be going to, to make sure that the plane takes off and heads in the correct uh, direction in order to land at its intended destination. And there's a true story of a pilot who was distracted when he was given this code. And so he transposed the numbers for his flight which was scheduled to take about 48 minutes. A few minutes after entering the wrong code, the flight, which was supposed to be headed west, was headed northeast, straight toward the Amazon jungle. Forty minutes into the flight, the captain looked out, and he's supposed to be landing in five to eight minutes, and all he can see is forest. (laughs) He can't see a city. He can't see a landing area. Nevertheless, he radioed the flight coordinator on the ground and let them know that he would be landing in five minutes. (laughs) True story. An hour later, the first captain of the flight identified the problem. This is an hour later. (laughs) And he explained it to the pilot, who ignored what the first captain had to say. And he refused to accept any help. And with only minutes remaining before the flight, before the plane ran out of fuel, all the pilot could do was look for a place, look for any place to land the plane. It's amazing that he landed the plane in this dense tropical jungle, but in doing so, he also killed 35 of the 48 passengers on board. There comes a time when it simply defies reason to deny wrongdoing. There comes a time when it defies reason to refuse to confess, to acknowledge our sin, to seek help, and to turn around before it's too late. And today we're going to see a prime example, the first example in the Bible, in fact, a picture of someone who. Refuses to confess, even when confronted with their sin. The passage that we'll be studying today comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, and is titled, Paradise Lost When Sin Goes Unconfessed. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that confession is the means by which fellowship with God is both restored and maintained. We've seen in our study of Genesis that God created everything and that it was all very good. It wasn't just good, it was very good. He created man, God created man, and he placed him in a garden in the land of Eden, instructing him to work and keep the land. And we saw that those words, when they're used together, are uh, they refer to an act of worship. His life was intended to be an act of worship. God established a covenant with the man in which he allowed the man to eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of good and evil knowledge. He gave the man a helper who would be his wife and all of life together, their marriage and everything that they did, it was all theocentric. It was all God-centered just as God had designed it to be. And yet temptation entered the scene through a serpent who was none other, as we saw, none other than Satan himself. He tempted Adam's wife to eat of the tree of good and evil knowledge while Adam stood in the background just watching idly by, thereby violating the terms and conditions of the garden covenant for which the penalty was death. Now we have to understand that up until that point. Death was not something that Adam and Eve would have understood at all. There was no death anywhere on earth. Man ate vegetables and fruit, same as the beasts of the field. They all ate vegetation. There was no death prior to this point, so it was something that they could not have possibly understood at all even though they were warned about it. They couldn't have completely understood it. To describe death to them would have been like trying to describe the color purple to a blind man or like trying to describe the smell of smoke to somebody who doesn't have a sense of smell like myself. Neither Adam nor Eve had ever seen anything die before. This was a completely foreign concept to them. And yet, the moment that they sinned, The moment that they fell to temptation, they immediately felt the effects of sin set in on them. They were immediately fallen from theocentricity, from God-centeredness. That came immediately after eating the forbidden fruit, as they instantly felt a sense of guilt. They were instantly plagued by an overwhelming sense of shame. Again, these were things that they had never, ever experienced before, not even in the slightest degree. And that brings us to our passage today, as the story, it just kind of continues right where it left off. Immediately after the fruit has been eaten, the forbidden fruit has been eaten, and they've sown fig leaves for themselves to cover themselves up, the eyes of Adam and Eve have been opened, but their hearts and their minds have been darkened. So we start in verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, of course, again, in the verse immediately prior to this, the effect of sin had already set in as Adam and Eve became aware and ashamed of their nakedness. So they felt guilt, they felt, they felt shame, because they, they suddenly realized they were naked. And of course, this is a stark contrast from what we read at the end of chapter 2, when everything was still theocentric. In verse two, uh, or chapter 2, verse 25, it said, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there's a huge swing here. It's a 180 degree difference. Their response to this deep sense of guilt and shame was to sew for themselves loincloths made out of fig leaves. And fig leaves can grow to be two to three times the size of an adult's hand, so it was probably sufficiently large enough to to cover themselves, but it's nevertheless just kind of a pathetic attempt to try and cover themselves up, to try and alleviate this overwhelming sense of, of shame and guilt that they felt when they fell the first sense that was affected by the fall was their sight their sight that's why they tried to cover themselves up because of what they they saw but what we see here in verse 8 is that there's another sense that is immediately affected and that is their hearing their hearing they immediately hear the sound of the Lord God and they're stricken with a deep sense of fear immediately fear of what fear of the sound of the lord's presence coming near what we see here is that the world has suddenly drastically changed as sin enters in guilt and shame come right in through the same door and close on its heels fear is introduced these are the things that are are a consequence of sin This is not how God designed it to be. This is not how he intended it to be. These are consequences of sin. Consequences that we still see absolutely everywhere in our world today. And so Adam, what does Adam do? What's their response? It's the middle of the day. So they find the darkest place that they can, which is amongst trees, to try to hide from the Lord. And it's interesting that God is seen here walking through the garden, isn't it? He, he's walking through the garden, unquestionably in human form. But isn't it kind of odd that he's that he's walking? I mean, that that indicates a calmness. It, it's not that he, you know, descended from above, right in their tracks, and you know was ready to 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 curse them immediately. He's not running after them. He's not marching after them. He's not trying to sneak up on them. He's not prowling. He's not riding in on a horse like a warrior. He's walking. He's not trying to terrify them. He's not trying to scare them. He's trying to find them. He's trying to be reconciled to them. Matthew Henry said, quote, He came into the garden as one that was still willing to be familiar with them. He's coming calmly. He's coming peacefully as one who is slow to anger and abounding in grace, abounding in compassion for what has happened. And of course, it seems most likely that this was the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus, a time when he entered into the world as a man in the Old Testament. Since in their fallen condition, if Adam and Eve would have died if they had seen God's Spirit, God has spirit. And it not it interesting to note, I'm not sure exactly what the significance is, but it's very interesting to note that the word that gets translated cool here, cool of day, the word cool means wind or breath or spirit. In fact, it's the same word that we saw back in chapter one, verse two, where it said, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It is in this coolness this wind, this breath, this spirit that the Lord God is walking. And he doesn't wait for Adam to come to him. He doesn't wait for Adam to seek him because the truth of the matter is Adam is never going to seek him. He doesn't wait for Adam to come to him. He immediately seeks Adam out. Once upon a time when Adam would have heard God his heart would have leapt for joy. It would have brought great joy to his soul, great comfort to his soul to be standing face to face with the Lord God, to have a visit from the Lord God. But now he's fallen. And so he runs and he hides. It's good when we feel a sense of guilt and shame when we've sinned. That is a good thing. Contrary to what anybody will ever tell you In pop culture or wherever, it is good to have a conscience that alerts you that something is wrong. That's a sign of a healthy conscience. The danger is in getting to the point where your conscience no longer starts alerting you that there's anything wrong in what you're doing, when it no longer stings the conscience, when sin no longer stings the conscience. And don't be deceived, friends, because it does happen far, far, far more easily than one might think. What we see here is that one of the most profound effects of the fall is the way that it influences our senses, the way we perceive things. As we read these verses, we see that they, they see each other and they feel shame. They hear God walking and they feel fear. I would say that in between the lines here, we also see that the intellect of man is fallen. The intellect of man is darkened greatly. Adam and Eve aren't exactly being very reasonable. They're not exactly exercising good reason as they try to hide themselves from God. In fact, to try to hide yourself from a God who is all-present and all-knowing might be the height of being unreasonable. When Adam and Eve fell, they didn't just fall from God's grace. Their senses and their intellect were also adversely affected. This is an intellectual fall that no amount of education or rehabilitation by man's means can fix. And this sensual and intellectual fall would not only affect Adam and Eve, it would be the default setting for every human being born in their line. We have to understand that this response is a picture of the way that a spiritually dead, unregenerate person acts and operates. Since no amount of reasoning and no amount of education can change this condition, this fallen condition, we're faced with a question. And that is, how do you and I Interact. How do we converse with somebody whose intellect and senses are completely fallen? How do we speak spiritual truth to an unregenerate mind? Two things are certain. We won't succeed in appealing to their senses, and we won't succeed in appealing to their reason. Because the unregenerate mind cannot and will not understand the things of God. Paul would write to the Romans saying, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Man's sinful flesh is always, it is perpetually hostile toward God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will obey God's laws. It will never desire to be obedient unto God. That's just how the flesh is. It cannot submit to God because it cannot understand God. In fact, it doesn't even desire to understand God. That is the default human condition. You see, it's irrational and unreasonable to reject God, and yet the unregenerate mind cannot submit itself to reason. So what hope does somebody who's lost have? How are we to speak to them? God is their hope. God is their hope. The gospel is their hope. And we speak to them by proclaiming the word of God, which has power that our words do not have. Our words do not have the power that Scripture, that God's word has. Paul would say to the Romans a little further into the letter, he'd say, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? See, they, they hear the voice of Christ when they're preached to, when the word of God is preached to them. In that verse from Romans, if you're reading any translation other than the NASB, You'll see that it says, and how are they to believe in him whom they have, uh, in whom they have never heard? But you'll see that that word in is in italics, which means it wasn't in the original. The literal translation says, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Jesus would say, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Friends, there is a power in God's word that is not present in our words that's why i put so much scripture in sermons it's the only part that's guaranteed to be infallible and inerrant right so i figure you know as, as long as i'm covering uh, you know as much scripture as i possibly can the more chance i have of being correct friends they they will not hear god's word anywhere outside of god's word they will not hear his voice outside of his word this is where you find it in the words of Scripture. The fact of the matter is, friends, that you and I need God's Word in order to experience the power of God's Word. Because we need to know God's thoughts, and this is where we find them. We need to know God's thoughts because we need Him to shape us, we need Him, need him to, to change the way we see things. Because in our fallen condition, we don't see things right, our senses are fallen. We need to know, how do we alleviate guilt and shame from sinning? How do we deal with our instinctive fear that God will punish us, and justly so, for our sin? These questions will be answered as as we continue in our text. Let's go to verses 9 and 10. Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. We read, But the Lord God called to the man, And said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. When God calls out to Adam, where are you? He's not saying this because he doesn't know where Adam is. It's because Adam doesn't know where Adam is. Not geographically speaking necessarily, but spiritually speaking. And these are words of compassion. Where are you? He doesn't say, Adam, get out here right now. You know, like, like a, parents, we know how that is, right? You know, we, we've all said it, you know, get out here right now. You're grounded for six years, you know. He, he, he compassionately and he tenderly asks, where are you? Where are you? He's gently prompting Adam to, to confess, to own up to his sin. And something that strikes me as, as just being very wrong with this confession that Adam gives is the fact he says that he's, he's afraid because he was naked. He's afraid because he was naked. I, I'm not sure that that's entirely true. If that is true, however, it reveals a very flawed logic as the reason that he should have feared was because he had committed treason against the god of the universe he had been disobedient he had been rebellious against god he had broken the covenant that he was given so either what he says here is just kind of a half truth and he's he's lying to an extent or this is just a continuation of the demonstration of the fall of adam's conscience his senses, and his intellect. Either way, what we see here is that sin has a compounding effect. One sin leads to another, leads to another. Sin never takes you to the the destination that you're asking it to take you to. It always takes you further. You guys ever taken a taxi before? How many of you guys would like it if the taxi took you another eight miles beyond your destination? That's what sin does. And in his fallen state, Adam doesn't even realize the futility of trying to hide from God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And I believe that Adam knew that prior to the fall because he had perfect fellowship with God prior to the fall he knew this he knew that God is all present he knew that God was all-knowing but in his fallen condition it's like amnesia like he just forgets it like that information just isn't there in his head anymore apparently he doesn't know after the fall what he knew prior to the fall Since the fall, every descendant of Adam has stood with nothing but guilt and shame before God. There is nobody in Adam's lineage, even to this day, who is basically a good person. So let's just use, uh, forget that type of phrase. Forget what, you know, when people use that phrase. "Eh, You know, so-and-so is basically a good person. No, nobody is basically a good person. And the shame and the guilt and the fear that we instinctively have toward God has caused every single one of Adam's descendants to try to hide from God and to lie about themselves to God. Solomon recorded some words of wisdom that God, uh, about God's awareness of our actions. He wrote in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, he said, "'The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, "'keeping watch on the wicked and the good.'" That's his omnipresence. That's his all-knowingness. He would go on to write in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This coming from the wisest man ever to live, who made some really unwise decisions, by the way. But in light of these truths, it is the height of folly. It is the height of complete foolishness to try to hide ourselves, to try to hide our sin from a God who sees and knows all things. What did David say about God's awareness of our actions? He said in Psalm 139, verse 7, he said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer, it's a rhetorical question, the answer obviously is nowhere. You can't go anywhere that God can't find you, that God isn't aware of you, that God doesn't know exactly what you're doing and what you're even thinking. When Peter was confronted with this sin, he confessed to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. Confession. Confession is the means by which fellowship with God is restored and maintained. And yet, People would prefer to try to hide from God. Apart from God seeking them out as he does with Adam, they will continue to try to hide from him. Maybe they'll stay away from church. Maybe they'll go to church. But maybe what they'll do is that they'll adopt this false religiosity that affirms all of their sin, all of their fleshly desires, and they'll find a church that'll affirm the same things. They're hiding from God. Whatever they do, they, you know, they, they, they want nothing to do with those who want to talk about Jesus, who love to talk about the gospel. Why? Because the sweet aroma of Christ to the believer is the smell of death to the unbeliever. Where are you today? Where are you today? Because the truth is that there are only two answers to this question. You're either walking in peace and fellowship with God through faith in Christ Jesus, striving to practice obedience to Him, or, number two, you're at war with God and you are God's enemy. Those are the only two options. And the easiest way to deal with the predicament of being an enemy of God and realizing that you are an enemy of God is to just set that fact as far away from your mind as you possibly can and to not even let it enter your conscience because the fact, the reality of it is so overwhelming for you, you just need to dismiss it. And so you try to hide from him in one way or another. Let me be very clear about something, friends. Unconfessed sin and unrepentance provide the fertile soil for backsliding, for apostasy, and for faithlessness to grow deep, deep roots in. Unconfessed sin and unrepentance breed enmity with God. That's what's happening here in our passage. That's what is going on with Adam and Eve. And we have to watch ourselves lest the same thing happen to us because, please hear me out, there, there is nothing, there is nothing that will steal your joy, that will steal from you the joy of salvation. And there is nothing that will steal from you your intimacy with God like unconfessed sin weighing on your conscience. Instead of owning up to his sin, Adam's trying to hide it. The conversation continues in verses 11 and 12. He, God, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Again, God is not asking questions that he doesn't know the answer to. He knows what's going on here. He knows it all. Nothing escapes his notice. We got it. It's logically impossible for an all-knowing God to learn. It's logically impossible for an unchanging God to learn. So what is God doing by asking these questions? The same thing he's been doing. The same thing he was doing before. He's prompting Adam to confess and to repent of his sin. This time, however, God's question is much more straightforward. He's much more to the point. And what's Adam's response to this direct question? God asks, who told you that you were naked? And Adam doesn't even address that. He doesn't even talk about that. That's nowhere in his answer. God asks him a yes or no question. Did you eat of this fruit? It's a yes or no question. How many of you parents know? You ask your kids yes and no questions if you want to find out what's going on. You don't ask open-ended questions. He asks them a yes or no question. Did you eat from that tree? And Adam goes into an explanation. So God is straightforward and Adam is evading, trying to duck the question. With one swift and stupid response, Adam tosses the blame first to his wife and then to God. First he blames his wife. He says, the woman, she gave me fruit. He wouldn't be the last to do that, would he, guys? (laughs) Then he blames God. The woman that you gave me. He wouldn't be the last to do that either. So whose fault is this? In in Adam's mind, it's, it's everybody's fault except his. You guys ever met somebody like that? It's Adam's fault. It's all Adam's fault. It's not Eve's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not even the serpent's fault. It is Adam's fault that he sinned. And rather than confessing and repenting of his sin, he refuses to own up to it. And we probably all know what that's like, don't we? Because we've all done it. Maybe we blame our sin on, on our environment. You know, I grew up in a, in a rough house, and so you know, this is just the way it was in, you know, in, in my house. This is just what we did. Maybe we blame God. You know, if, if God didn't want me to do this, then why did he make me with, with, with hormones and desires and things like that? Why do, why do I have these affections that are completely natural? I would dispute that, by the way. Maybe we blame someone else because, well, you know, I, I wouldn't have sinned if so-and-so wouldn't have done this first. We've all done it. Listen, God will not accept our excuses for sinning you can come up with the best excuse in the world you can you, you can have a, a great logical case and it will not justify or excuse your sin before god he will not accept your excuses for sinning but he will accept our confession and our repentance. Look, the reality is that we can't undo our sin. Once we do it, it's done. It's out there. We've done it. And so what do you do with it? That's the question. We can own up to it. We can admit that we did it, and we can admit that it's wrong, and we could desire that we don't do it again. We confess it, by God's grace, by His conviction, by the power of His strength in us, we can turn from it. You see, the blame game isn't going to alleviate anything. It's not going to ease the burden of guilt from your shoulders. It's still going to be on your shoulders. You just might grow cold to it if you don't confess or if you play the blame game. Confession is the only means of healing and reconciling, restoring a broken relationship that's been fractured or broken by sin. Confession is the only way to heal and restore. Whether we're talking about sinning against God in general or talking about sinning against another person, confession is the only path that leads to to reconciliation. Confession doesn't mean telling God something that you know, he, he doesn't already know. It's aligning ourselves with what he has already said and with what he already knows. So it's not the same as admitting wrongdoing, although that isn't necessarily a bad place to start, although it wouldn't be wise to start with boasting about what you've done in a proud way. To confess means to bring ourselves into agreement with God's moral judgment as revealed in God's holy, inerrant, infallible, God-inspired word. If you need to admit something, admit that you had no excuse. Admit that you had no excuse. Admit that you were wrong. Admit that you deserve from God the full consequence for your sin. That's difficult for us though, isn't it? That's really hard for us to do. That's the opposite of our nature. The very opposite of what our flesh would incline us to do. It's the opposite of self-preservation. It's becoming completely transparent. Completely vulnerable in the presence of God willfully. But we have to understand that God's, that while God's forgiveness is always freely offered, we must not confuse that to mean that it's easy. Sometimes it feels like nothing could be more difficult than laying down our pride and throwing ourselves entirely upon the mercy of God. Leaving no hope in ourselves, leaving no hope in our circumstances. No hope in our goodness. No hope in anything about us. Just trusting fully in God's mercy. But listen to Ezra's prayer of confession. The people of Israel had sinned, and, and this, is, this is exactly what he does. He throws, he throws himself and, and, and his, his people entirely upon the mercy of God, the grace of God. He says this in chapter 9, verse 6 of Ezra. He says, great prayer of repentance. He says, oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Seems to me that if there is a prayer that we need for our nation right now, this would be a good place to start. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 32. He says, For when I kept silent, he's unrepentant, he's not confessing anything to God, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He's talking about the weight of his conscience in light of his unrepentant, unconfessed sin. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, confession is humbling, isn't it? It's, it's humbling. Real confession is a blow to our pride. It's a devastating blow to, to our, our sense of self-esteem and ego. So confess openly, but don't confess hypocritically. See, a hypocrite will confess their sin, but then they'll continue to love it. True confession, on the other hand, will ultimately serve to help free us from the power of the sin that we're confessing because the child of God will come to see sin as a poison that needs to be vomited every time it's ingested. How many of you guys have food allergies? Yeah, I, a lot of people have them. How many times do you have to eat something that'll put you in the hospital before you realize, oh, I shouldn't eat that anymore? How many times do you need to eat something poisonous and throw it up before you start to realize that you shouldn't eat it anymore? Confession, regular confession, will give us that perspective of sin. We'll start to see it as a poison that needs to be vomited every time we ingest it. See, confession does for the soul what preparing the soil does for the harvest. In the parable of the seed sower, for example, Jesus says that there are four types of soil. There's rocky soil, right? There's shallow soil. There's soil that's filled with weeds. And then there is good soil. There's fertile soil. And confession removes the rock's from the soil, Confession digs down deep and loosens the soil for the roots of faith to grow into. Confession cleans out the weeds so that the seed may take root, so that the seed may flourish, and so that the seed may produce fruit. God is being kind, gracious with Adam here. And Scripture tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. You might ask, what's the relationship between repentance and confession? Confession is like the main ingredient of the recipe for repentance. The recipe for repentance is something like this. We we see our sin. we, We become aware of it. We acknowledge our sin We feel a sense of sorrow for our sin. We confess our sin. There's that main ingredient. And over time, we learn to hate our sin. And we learn to turn from our sin. And we're freed from the power that our sin had on us. That's what repentance looks like. It's a process. It's a daily process. Sometimes it's an hourly process. St. Augustine famously said, God has promised forgiveness for your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. Please, do not wait. Do not wait to confess and repent. Sin should be confessed. It must be confessed as soon as it's committed. How does Eve respond, by the way? She's kind of been in the background this whole time, which is kind of ironic because Adam was kind of in the background in the previous passage, and now Eve has been in the background in this passage. So let's, look, let's finish up by looking at what she says. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Is she telling the truth? Yeah, she, it's true. She was deceived by the serpent. And Paul verifies that for us, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. She was deceived. However, Paul also verifies something else for us in that verse. He says that by being deceived, she became a transgressor. And we might think, that seems really unfair. Why would she become a transgressor what could possibly be so wrong with with being deceived that she would become a transgressor i mean it sounds so innocent right she she was tricked hey hey i was tricked you can't you can't keep me responsible for something that i was deceived into is her attitude as we noted in our previous lesson there was no reason for eve to have been deceived She could have just shut the door on the conversation with the serpent as soon as he started questioning God and questioning God's Word. She could have clarified the terms of the covenant with God. She could have gone directly to Him if she was unclear or confused about how exactly this all worked. But she didn't either. She didn't either. The sinful aspect of her action is that she traded the truth for a lie. She traded the truth for a lie and it is a sin to trade the truth for a lie. And ignorance, whether that's willful or not, of God's word is not an excuse for violating the word of God. Let's say you get pulled over by a cop. You're going 100 miles an hour in a 25. And you say, I didn't realize what the speed limit was. You, you can't hold me responsible for that. Let's say you're going 26 in a 25. 25. I didn't realize what the speed limit was. Are you still responsible for it? Can you still get in trouble for it? Yes, you can. Like Adam, just like Adam, instead of confessing, instead of owning up to her sin, instead of repenting from her sin, she plays the blame game. She passes that hot potato to the serpent. What we see in this passage, friends, is that God was true to his word. When Adam and Eve ate of this forbidden fruit, they were immediately separated from the source of life. They were spiritually separated from God. They fell from theocentricity. The first two chapters of Genesis and the first small handful of verses in chapter three of Genesis are unique in the sense that they're the only chapters and verses in the entire Bible in which salvation was not required, a Savior was not required. Once Adam sinned, however, it introduced the need for a Savior who could restore us to theocentricity. The need for someone to free us from slavery to sin was introduced. The need for a new and better, more faithful and obedient Adam is introduced. We need a man who would maintain his perfect innocence by refusing to fall to temptation and would thus be qualified to stand in the chasm between fallen man and God as a reconciler between the two sides. Jesus would enter into the world through the conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin and would therefore not inherit inherit Adam's inherently sinful nature. Christ was fully man and fully God. And where Adam failed, Christ, the last Adam, prevailed. Adam rejected the perfect will of God. Christ resigned himself to the perfect will of God. Adam overstepped. Christ obeyed. Adam essentially said to God, kill my bride in order that I may live. And Christ said, kill me in order that my bride... His people, the church, may live. Those who continue to attempt to hide from God and to reject His Son, His ways, and to sin with reckless abandon would be very wise to give considerable thought to the question, where are you? The evidence points to the reality that they are fallen. They are spiritually dead, separated from fellowship with God. They are in bondage to sin. They cannot free themselves. Their only hope is to beat their chest and cry out to God, God be merciful unto me, a sinner. Throwing themselves completely on the mercy of God just as we have to every day. The sinner who realizes the filth, the offense of their sin and the deadness within themselves should not, they must not rest from pursuing Christ until they truly and fully believe that He and He alone is their hope of being reconciled to God. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And confession of sin is always a fruit of Possession of faith in Christ. The fruit of our profession will be abundant if it's rooted in the soil of confession. Confession is the means by which fellowship with God is restored and maintained. So do not allow sin to blind you from your constant need for Christ. Your need for God's grace every second of every day. We must be a people who are quick to confess our sin and who see the futility of trying to hide from God. As Christians, you know, it's easy for us to confess in a kind of a general sense, that we're sinners, that we, that we need God, you know, because we're, we're sinners. And yet, while that is good, and while that is true, that is not enough. We must do more. To leave it at that is to actually silence the conscience from doing its work. We must confess our sins individually. Yes, we are sinners, but we must Go beyond just admitting that in a general sense, confessing that in a general sense, and confess our sins individually. As we do them, as the Holy Spirit alerts our consciences to them, remembering that if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, Christ is faithful and just, and abounding in grace to forgive us, to renew us, to cleanse us, and to do the good work of weaning us from all unrighteousness. We need Him as much while we're walking with Him as we needed Him, as we needed His grace when we weren't walking with Him. Our Father, in in all truth, we recognize that we fail at this. Our hearts convict us, Lord, that we're too slow to confess, that we aren't thorough enough in confessing, and yet, Lord, your grace is abundant. So we pray, Lord, that you would sharpen our consciences with your Holy Spirit, by your Holy Spirit. Make us aware of sin. Help us to realize, Lord, that apart from your grace, apart from the strength of the Spirit within us, we couldn't confess, we couldn't repent. So we pray, God, that you would do that work in us of convicting us, teaching us to turn from our sin, weaning us from the power of sin in our lives in order that we may live lives that are pleasing to you, in order that we may walk in uninhibited fellowship with you, in order that we may demonstrate your glory and your goodness in all of life. We thank you, Lord, that Christ restores us from the fall, that he redeemed us, that he bridged the chasm between you and us. Thank you, Lord, that it pleased you to crush him in our place, and it pleased you to give us his righteousness so that we could stand before you, not as enemies, but as friends. Thank you, Lord, for doing what needed to be done to restore our walk with you, our fellowship with you. We pray that that would be a daily reality in our lives for your glory, for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.